We're in the middle of a series, but let me start with a question. How would you, um, actually this is a good question for you to ask at a personal level. How do you want people to think about you? When people think about you, what, what do you want to come to mind? One of the things I have pondered over the years, although I'm not morbid, I do ask the question, uh, at the end of life, when uh, I have had the privilege of going to be with the Lord, and uh, you guys all get to laugh at me, crack jokes, and do all those kinds of fun things, you know. I told Nancy when I died, just throw a party. All right, just throw a party. Um, I have asked the question, what do I want people to say about me? My kids have their own ideas of what will go on my tombstone. I'm going to have to put that in my will, I guess. But as a church, as Dillon Community Church, what would we like uh, the Summit County to say about us? That was a question I asked all the way through the interview process with the transition team and elders. How do you guys want to be known? How are you known and what do you, what do you want to change? And uh, I think that's an important question. How do we want people, what do we want them to say about Dillon Community Church? What naturally just comes to mind? Some churches define themselves by what they don't believe. Uh, I'm not a fan of that approach, but it is actually very common. You can go to websites of churches, and often you'll have statements on there, we don't believe this. And in some respects, a statement of faith, which we were talking about on Wednesday nights at the theology class, a statement of faith does begin to articulate and draw some boundaries. Here's what we do believe. But it's not a statement of what we don't believe. I don't want to define us. Our elders don't want to define us by what we don't believe. I really want to take the time to wrestle through, as we have been doing, what is it we do believe? Let's define ourselves that way. Let's define ourselves by the things that we all agree on which are good and right. Does that make sense? And so I think it's a question that I'm going to continue to wrestle with, with the leadership team and with you. We're in the middle of a series, the story that we find ourselves in. We started with the basic premise that there's this story, a grand story from creation to new creation. It's God's story. God is the one that created all of us and everything that we see. So this is his story. And the best thing we can do is to take the time to explore that story and look at where we fit in the middle of that story. Now, because we're looking at a story, we're looking at a book that's pretty big and complex from end to end. So some of you have commented on the fact that each Sunday we look at a series of verses. That's because it's hard to capture the story in a single verse. So I've been very consistent in, in helping you go from creation to new creation and look at threads and themes that go through the Bible that define us to look at different aspects, and that's just going to continue. So you might go ahead and get your Bibles out for those of you that want to follow along. If you don't want to turn pages and follow along, that's fine. You can listen because we'll read them. We started out with one of the unique things about this story that we find ourselves in is that we worship the one true living God. We don't worship other gods. We don't worship the gods of other religions. We worship who we believe is the one true living God who has expressed himself in his son Jesus. But then we took last week and look at, looked at the whole concept of creation and said we are caretakers of creation. We believe in Christian theology that God gave us this as a gift. It wasn't an accident. He gave us this as a gift. He gave it with intention, with purpose, so that we would enjoy it. And so the whole concept of care of the creation should be a center point. It should be very, very strong in our theology. Not that we worship the creation, not that at all, but we should lead the charge 
in being environmentally sensitive, caring for what God has given us. And in a county where environmental sensitivity is of high value, I mean, this is one of those places where we can really make a statement, can't we, as a church? If we come to, I mean, if we all agree that this is our home, God gave it to us, let's enjoy it, let's take care of it, let's thank Him for it. That's how we should approach creation. So if, if, you're, if you find yourself not environmentally sensitive, then just go take some hikes, go skiing, and stop and ponder every step of the way what God has done. It's an amazing thing what he has done for us, his love for us. So I want to continue to ask the question week after week of how we as a church fit into that story. And today, we're going to take a look at what it means to be a blessing to the nations. You've heard that phrase. I've used it more than once. In fact, I hear some of you using it back to me. I like that. We are a blessing to the nations. More specifically, I want us to answer the question over time, what does it mean for us to be a blessing to Summit County? Because this is where we live. This is where our home is, our abode. What does it mean for us to be a blessing right here with these people? So whenever anybody around us, a question I think every church should ask on a regular basis is if we close the doors tomorrow, would the people around us be glad? Would they be sad? Or would they even notice? I think there's only one right answer to that question. I want them to be sad if that were to happen. So... I'm going to start with Paul in Romans. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans is Paul's most sustained theological argument. He did not know the church at Rome, and so he spends a lot of time explaining his theology about God's righteousness, his love for us, his salvation, the problem that we're dealing with is his creation, all of that. He's making very few assumptions in this book because he's not been there. In other books, he'll, he makes assumptions. He'll say, don't you remember when I visited you, I said this? Well, he's not doing that here. That's why it's so long. It's a sustained argument. And so he starts and ends the same way, this whole concept of being a blessing to the nations. Look in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through him, that's Christ, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to faith. Hear it? to call all the Gentiles to faith and obedience for his name's sake. Aren't those wonderful words? That's how he starts. Now go to the last chapter, Romans chapter 16. Look how he concludes the book with his final benediction, his final blessing. Romans chapter 16, the last chapter, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ... In keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings, uh, you, do, you are aware that Paul likes to run on sentences, right? In fact, in Greek, sometimes these sentences are very long. Some of them go five or six verses. We just break them up. So this is a long sentence. He, he's writing and he keeps throwing things in there, wants to say. But now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to faith and obedience. So that all the Gentiles might come to faith and obedience. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. He starts and ends the book with his love for reaching out to the nations. By the way, the word uh, uh, Gentiles, you could translate it nations. Okay, nothing wrong with that. It's the same. 
And so the book of Romans is the book where Paul lays out God's, his, his argument from creation to new creation to reach the nations. So you may remember in Genesis 3, he uh, said there's no one righteous, not even one. No one seeks for God. That means we're in trouble. That means we're in trouble. Genesis 1, I mean, uh, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings. We are all in the same boat, friends. And this book, Romans, is the, is the one, the longest sustained argument of God's deep love and passion for all the nations of the world. And Paul starts not by defining the gospel. He starts by explaining the plight that we're in. We are definitely in a plight. We are in trouble. The, the creation struggles if God does not intervene. And he spends three chapters talking about, and he captures everybody in that net. As he casts the net of how broken everyone is, he pulls everybody into the same net before he finally gets to the point of talking about what the gospel is. Because he wants us to understand we all share alike in this struggle. All of us as human beings, we are members of one race. doesn't matter what our ethnicity is. We all struggle. So now let's go back and look at what Paul made, uh, said about that. So I'm not going to take you back for most of this. I'm just going to describe it because you know the stories. And so what I'm going to do is put them in a context. Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation. Genesis 3, we have the curse. Genesis 3 is very significant because it provides us information about what this world looks like that has come under the curse. This is God's curse. Therefore, it takes God's blessing to overcome God's curse. You get that? God cursed it. God's the only one that can change it. So it's very important that both of those are true. It's God's curse, and therefore God changes it. He overcomes it. So God, Genesis 3 provides us with this picture. Humans, right off the bat, Adam and Eve, the very first thing they do is they hide from God in fear. It's their immediate response. They're now afraid. They weren't afraid before. They now experience shame. They begin to blame one another, don't they? I love Adam's response. It was Eve. <laughs> I've used it many times. Doesn't work any better now than it did back then. <laughs> Isn't that part of our world? Isn't that part of our culture? We experience fear. We experience shame. We blame one another. Isn't that the natural thing to do? We see it all over the place. Even the soil, the very soil, comes under God's curse. Then starting in chapter 4... Through chapter 11, we have the after effects of the curse. And if you read nothing more and you want to grasp how broken the world is, just read chapters 4 through 11. Those of you that are reading the Bible have already done it. And what you see is there's this humanity just, just drives right off the cliff. There's this cascading series of sin that goes deeper and deeper and deeper until the flood. And then, after the flood, humanity picks up right where they left off. They begin to resist God's will for them at Babel. By the time you get to Judges, all long after the Exodus, we've deteriorated so far, God's chosen people, where it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is our natural tendency. We will always move in that direction. Culture, because of the curse, is always going to lead us toward destruction and off the cliff. Always. 
Every area of life is tragically impacted by the fall. All of creation is broken beyond repair. If God chooses to ignore us, what hope do we have? This is where the concept of Christian hope floats to the surface because we have a God that remembered. He did not forget us. He loves us. He moves passionately, purposefully, intentionally, pervasively through our lives, even unbelievers. In fact, if you were to take a second and reflect back on your own journey to Christ, every one of you has a different story. But one of the common things I'm willing to bet is that each of you can recognize God's presence before you finally recognized him. He was involved in your life. He was tapping on the shoulder. He's whispering in your ear. Somehow he's there. That reflects the God that I know. So we often ask the question, what about the person who never hears about Jesus? I think we got it backwards. I think God pursues every human on the planet because he loves us. He didn't forget us. He remembered us. That was the message of Advent. So now, before we get to the solution, we see jealousy. We see anger. We see murder. We see vengeance. We see violence. We see corruption. We see drunkenness, sexual disorder, arrogance, on and on and on. That's the product of the fall. If God decides to intervene, which he did, he has several problems to resolve. Number one is our own personal sin. And uh, as evangelicals, we focus on that very well. We've done a great job of talking about our own personal sin and salvation, but it's far bigger, it's far global than that. We have the strife of nations to contend with. God didn't create the nations so that we live in strife and tension with one another. No, he created the nations for a very wonderful reason because each of us conceptualizes or conceives of this one true God in a unique way because our language is all different. And so all the nations, when they come together at the end times, we'll look at this in Revelation, when they come together, they all speak about God's glory, but they, but they perceive it and experience it in different ways. And so it's a wonderful setting. It's a wonderful story. So God has to contend with and overcome the strife of nations. He has to overcome the suffering of creation, the curse on the ground, all the things that he put in place. That's his mission. That's his mission. God loves his creation so much that he interacts with us in every way imaginable so that we will all turn to him. That's his desire. And worship him alone as the one true God. Now, let's look at what the solution was. That starts in Genesis 12. Do you want to turn to me to Genesis 12? I'm going to read three verses or four verses. This is the answer. Genesis 4 through 11, we see humanity just sliding right off the cliff. Every known sin that you could think of, the core of all these sins just floats to the surface. And then in Genesis 12, God steps in and he begins to act. And he starts with Abraham. Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. The first thing we notice is that the word blessing occurs five times. This is the core. This is the center. This is the heart of God's solution. It's not judgment. In fact, Christ, he said, I didn't come to judge. 
We'll get back to that another day. No, the very heart of God's solution is a blessing. He created us. He loved us. What parent doesn't want to be a blessing to their children? Does it sometimes include judgment and disobedience and punishment? Sure it does. But that is not the mainstream. The mainstream of God's response to this broken world is to be a blessing. Five times he mentions it. It's a central theme. It is fantastic news in the middle of this darkness, this brokenness, this horrible, horrible place where we found ourselves and find ourselves today is that God desires, desires to bless us. What a fantastic, glorious surprise. Does it get any better than that? To serve the one true God who desires to bless us? That's as good as it gets. It is rich beyond all comparison. We've seen this word before, so we know that God loves the concept of blessing. In chapter 1, verse 22, on day number 5, he blessed the fish and the birds. It says, be fruitful. On day number 6, in chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed humans. We are to experience abundance, abundance fullness. It talks about work that he gave us to do, things that we're supposed to be doing. On uh, chapter 2, verse 3, on day 7, he blesses Sabbath. Creations to enjoy rest. Think about these four words that are tied to this concept of blessing because this is what his desire is for us. Be fruitful, experience abundance, abundance, experience fullness, and experience rest. That's what we were created for. We're not created for destruction, murder, sin, all of that. We're not created for death. That's why it hurts so deeply when we lose someone. There's nothing inside of our created person that equips us to handle death, cancer, sickness, loss. That's why the community of faith and the Holy Spirit become so significant. That's God's answer during this period of history. We help each other. Holy Spirit brings grace. That grace that seems so elusive to me. I never know when it's going to show up and when it's not going to show up. That's why I constantly pray that God shows his grace to us. I never know when it's coming, but I do know when it comes, it was needed. <laughs> the day my first wife died, I felt it. It was there, as real as anything I've ever experienced in life. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You can have confidence. When life gets that hard, God shows up. It's just amazing. Amazing. He loves blessing. He wants all of us to experience this. That's what we're created for. But this blessing for the nations, this broader global idea, is dependent on, number one, a relationship with God, but it finds its expression in the way we relate to one another. That's where the blessing shows up. That's where it becomes very tangible, very real in the way we, we live our lives with each other. I can't say it enough. Your lives matter. The way we live life as a church does matter. Your Christian character makes a difference. Whether or not you see it, it makes a difference. If we are a church that's divided and fragmented, we have one reputation. If we're a church that's wholesome and, and healthy and we, and we constantly guard that unity that Paul talks about and we put each other first, we have a very different reputation, don't we? How we live lives as a congregation makes a difference. It's not meaningless. It is significant. Struggle with sin. It's okay. Just overcome it. Overcome it. Live lives worthy of the calling with which you have been called, Paul says. 
It matters. Your life matters. Blessing becomes self-replicating. We become a blessing to each other. Our congregation becomes a blessing to the county. And people figure out what that means and they become a blessing to others. It is profoundly missional at the very core. The idea of blessing is a, is a statement of being missional, of moving into the lives of others. You can't be a blessing to others if we never move into the lives of each other, can we? It just doesn't work. So the whole concept of being a blessing to the nations at its very core is us moving out. And as we continue to develop uh, a culture of reaching out to Summit County and managing and creating what we want this to look like and what we want our, uh, our uh, reputation to be, these things become very important to us. So on staff, we are always asking the question every week, what's going on in the congregation? Who's hurting? Who needs prayer? Who got frustrated over something? Who's been hurt by someone else? What can we do to help? Because we want to, we want to constantly be out in, the, in, in, this, in, in your lives helping bring this back to peace. Bring this back to the Lord is good. The Lord desires to bless us. Does that make sense? You follow me when I say it that way? This is important to us. All the leadership is concerned about this. And Paul grasped it. That's why he talks about all this in Romans. Well, the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations, it's repeated five times in the Old Testament. The first three to Abraham himself. I'm just going to give you the references. Genesis 12, 3, Genesis 18, 18, Genesis 22, 18, and then to his offspring, Genesis 26 and Genesis 28. This phrase is repeated, being a blessing to the nations. This highlights the core of God's mission in a broken world, to be a blessing to the nations. There is a straight line between the nations who need redemption in Genesis 4 through 11 and the nations who have received redemption in Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Let's go to the end of the story. Revelation chapter 7. Most of you know that uh, in a prior life I taught, and uh, one of the questions I would routinely ask in the classroom is, uh, when, you, when you end up in the uh, glory, in the eternal state, uh, what color are you going to be? It's always an amazing time, a question to ask young students because their first response, yeah, because we're largely predominant, uh, predominantly white, Caucasian in the classrooms, the school I was at, is to answer the question, well, I'm gonna, you know, we're all going to be Caucasian. But then the moment I ask the question, they become acutely aware that someone else in the room isn't the same ethnicity or color that they are. And all of a sudden, they have no idea how to answer the question. What language are you going to speak? Well, look in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And there's, it's repeated several times in Revelation. I just picked this one. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. See it? From every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out, cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what ethnicity or what color are you going to be? Just the way you are. God intended from the very beginning that we be a mixed ethnic group. 
And that's one of the most wonderful gifts that he gave us. Because we get the chance to see and experience God through each other's eyes. And we think differently. This is a blessing from the very beginning. So there's a straight line between all the nations that God created in Genesis 10 and 11 and the Tower of Babel and the brokenness that we see in the world. There's a straight line through the Bible to Revelation chapter 7 and the other passages of these redeemed nations. So we know what it's like not to be redeemed and we have a glimpse of what it means to be redeemed. Everything in between those two poles, creation and new creation, is the, the accomplishment of this incredible feat. That is the story of the Bible. That is it. We could take any passage and we could wrestle with it and it's going to fit under that overarching theme that God wants to be a blessing to this creation. He did not forget us. This is the heart of Christian theology. We fit into this storyline by being a blessing to the nations or more specifically, in our cultural context, by being a blessing to Summit County. That's how we fit in. And the question is, what does that look like? That's why I want to raise the question for the next several months and say, what should we be doing two or three years from today that we're not doing today? Let's wrestle with that. Let's dream. I love those of you that are already exploring in your conversations. What does that mean? I've got all kinds of ideas coming. Some crazy, some wacky, some wonderful. No, they're all great. What, is it, what does that mean? How do we fit into some accounting? So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to finish with this. I'm going to do a quick flyby. Uh, don't even try to keep up. You just listen. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His deeds, marvelous deeds among all the peoples. You see his love just flowing out for the world, his creation. I'm going to turn to Isaiah 60. Again, I could have picked many, many verses. I just handpicked a few here just to give you a flyby. Arise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the whole earth and thick darkness over all the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you Nations will come into your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Do you see the Lord's love for his creation? He is going to pull it off. He's going to make it happen. You heard these at, at, during Advent. Luke chapter 1. And Mary's song, the very last thing. Luke chapter 1, verse 55, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just as he promised. That's our hope. God is faithful. Just as he promised, he's going to reach the nation. The next chapter, chapter 2, Simeon praises God. She, she walks in and gives the baby Jesus to Simeon. I can only imagine the tears and the excitement and the joy. And here's what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for the Gentiles. God did not forget us. He remembered his promise. He remembered his covenant. Our lives matter. He intends, he intends to establish this reign in his creation to the entire universe through Abraham, 
Israel, and the church. We have a role to play. We have a very important role to play. We're getting ready to take an offering. We're going to have two offerings. Mark explained it. We're going to pass, and we're going to do an offering that just meets the general needs of the church and all the ministries that we do around here. And then there's a benevolence offering. Uh, up front on either side and two in the back, there's containers that you can put a gift in where we help people that just need help. We, they just need help. You know, some people are just, just hurting so deeply, and it's just as a way to help them. We're going to do that. But I want you to think about this. Why, Mark asked you at the beginning, why do you come to church? Why did you come to church today? Fantastic question. She had asked that every Sunday. We should just get in the habit of asking you, why did you come to church today? I'm going to ask the question, why are you giving? Why are you giving? Why are you going to write a check and give? Why are you going to do it? I want you to hear Paul's words because this relates to God's mission. The very first thing he says is our giving is for the purpose of ministry. I'm reading a well-known passage to you. It's out of 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. That's the principle that kind of defines the whole passage. If you're generous, you experience generosity. If not, you don't. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compassion, or compulsion, I mean. For God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, if you're not giving cheerfully, don't give. Just pause. If you've gotten to the point where it's become institutionalized and wrote, just take a break and say, how do I restore this, 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 this cheerfulness? Whatever it is that God just leads you to give. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now here it is. You will be made rich in every way. We do not teach faith formula theology because there's another phrase that follows. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through your generosity, it will result in thanksgiving to God. So the first reason is we give is to be an encouragement, to be a blessing to others. But then he goes on. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, people will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Second reason you give, because it's living out your faith in a very real, real and tangible way. That's the second reason you give. Every time we give, it's a way for us to live our, 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 our God, the gospel that we believe. This fantastic news about what God has done. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come up, take the offering, and I'm going to uh, pray for you in just a minute. But pause and think about that. As you, uh, as you write a check, or as you, maybe you've already written one out, I trust that's between you and the Lord. He, he helps you figure out what to do with it. But as you drop it in, just pause and say, God, thank you for this incredible good news in a lost and broken world. Thank you. And by the way, thanks for being generous. You guys are very generous. Thank you. Let me pray. Father, this offering that we're about to receive, we uh, take it, Lord, and we, we receive it in the name of your Son for his glory. And Lord, uh, help us find ways to use it to tell people about what you have done. It's incredible news. In Jesus' name, amen.